Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with the towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But he is clean all over, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. When he washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I, I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, do, are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite authors is Rachel Remen. I love her book, Kitchen Table Wisdom. In it, she tells the story of one day she was flying from San Francisco almost across the country. It was hard getting through the airport because she had been struggling with her eyesight. And finally getting to the airplane and being able to sit down, she really was grateful and wanted to just kind of decompress. She was sitting on the bulkhead row and she was sitting on the aisle. There was an empty seat next to her, and then sitting at the window was an older gentleman, very nicely dressed. He was staring out the window. It was great for her. She really wasn't interested in talking. She got out a murder mystery novel and just kind of buried it in her face and started reading. After they had taken off and they had been going for a little while, they came by with a snack, a salad, a roll, uh, some yogurt, And she had hers and she was munching on this little snack and when suddenly she heard something and she looked over and this man had knocked off his carton of yogurt and it landed all over his feet. Well, she expected him to do something, clean it up. But instead what he did was he started to move his right foot back underneath the seat so that you couldn't see it. And for the first time, she was now able to see his left foot, and she realized there was a brace on it. His left leg was paralyzed. Well, in a few minutes, here came the flight attendant bringing the drink cart. And as she got to Rachel, Rachel said, if you could bring us a wet towel, kind of looking over towards the the yogurt, 
this flight attendant suddenly went off on her. I've got hundreds of people to take care of. I'm doing the best that I can. I'll get to it whenever I can. And Rachel said, I could tell. She didn't realize I meant to participate. And so she simply said softly, if you will bring the wet towel, I will clean it up. The flight attendant was just shocked. She, she kind of recoiled. Then she went up to the galley. She brought back a wet towel and then she moved on with the cart. At this point, Rachel looked over at the man and she said, flying used to be so much fun. But I've really been struggling with my eyesight and, you know, it's gotten so very hard and stressful. The man, looking out the window and speaking softly, said to Rachel about how he had been out to San Francisco to see his son. And it was about eight months ago he had had a stroke. He was now paralyzed on the left side. He hadn't had any feeling from his fingertips to his elbow on both arms. And then he said in a quiet voice, and now I'm incontinent. And Rachel just kind of marveled about sometimes how God arranges things to happen just like they need to happen. The right seatmate. Because she was able to look at him and said, you know, I have an ileostomy. He turned back, what's that? She said, well, years ago, I had to have my large intestines taken out. And I have to wear an apparatus, a white plastic bag, in order to catch all of my undigested food particles. I always worry that it's going to leak, especially when I'm flying, even though it's now been 30 years. The two of them just looked at each other in silence. Finally, Rachel picked up the towel and said, May I? He nodded his head. She got down on her knees and now she began to wipe his feet. He leaned forward and said, I used to play the violin. When she was through wiping his feet, she got up and took the towel back up to the galley, gave it back to the flight attendants and The flight attendants were suddenly very verbose. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. Thank you for doing that. Of course. She was back in her seat a little later. They came through the drink cart again. It was a different flight attendant. And when she came through, again, she stopped and said, Thank you so much for your help. Thank you so much for what you did. Whatever you'd like to drink. It's on the house. Anything that you want. I'm fine, thanks. When the flight came to an end, she got up and she was starting to leave the plane. And she said, I always will look at the pilot and smile and nod. She said, as I was going forward, there was the pilot and he stopped her. Thank you so much for what you did. Thank you so much for helping. We're so grateful to you. And he placed a little something in her hand and she was walking up the gangplank before she looked at it. And what she saw was a small little set of wings like you would give to children after their first flight. I want to read you what Rachel had to say. A flight crew deals with thousands of Americans every year. Their surprised reaction to a simple act of kindness is chilling. Perhaps we are no longer a kind people. 
more and more we seem to have become numb to the suffering of others and ashamed of our own suffering. Yet suffering is one of the universal conditions of being alive. We all suffer. We've become terribly vulnerable, not because we suffer, but because we have separated ourselves from each other. Becoming numb to suffering will not make us happy. The part in us that feels suffering is the same part that feels joy. It really left me thinking. Maybe we have become numb to the suffering of others and ashamed of our own suffering. And that separates us. It doesn't bring you joy. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Raising the Dead. We've said that we're going to go through the season of Lent and we're going to be looking at how Christ raises us from the dead, both when we die, but also right now. When we find ourselves in those moments where we are numb, when we feel alone and lost, when we are depressed and struggling and We believe that it is Christ who can raise us from the dead right now. And so this morning I wanted us to look at this story that we find in the 13th chapter of John. Now if you are participating in the church-wide Bible study, you know that we're moving through and you have the booklet you can pick up where it gives you prayers and questions to think about. We were reading one chapter a week and now we're reading two chapters a week. And if you're following and you're right on track... This week, you'll be reading the 13th chapter and you'll be reading the story. But to fully understand this story, I think it's important that there's some other background information we need to have. First of all, this is the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They've just had this wonderful triumphal entry of everybody processing in to Jerusalem and all the people waving their palm branches. Now understand, the disciples really believed Jesus was about to organize the crowds. All those crowds who are waving palm branches and shouting, they believed Jesus was the Messiah and he was going to bring the people together, form an army, overthrow the Romans, and establish the kingdom of Israel. They wanted to be sitting at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. If he's the new king, am I going to get an appointment of power? Am I going to have a place in the new kingdom? They were all concerned about that. And so what we also have going on with the disciples is there's a real argument about who's the greatest? Who's the most important? Go back and read Matthew and Mark. And they will tell you on the way to Jerusalem, they were arguing about it. And James and John go to Jesus and say, Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into power? If you read the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that same argument is going on on the night of the Last Supper. That they're still trying to argue, all right, who's better than you? Who's better? It's all about ego going on here. Now, it's also important to understand in Jesus' day, you didn't have closed-toe shoes. You had sandals. You had leather straps holding them on, your feet. And as you walked along the roads, they were dirt roads. Your feet would sweat. 
Dirt's landing on your feet, sticking to your feet, caking on. You have dirty feet when you get to the end of the day. And so when you come into someone's house, there was always a jar of water so you could wash your feet. Now, the owner of the house would show hospitality, that would be required, and wash your feet when you came in the house. Or if the owner was wealthy, they would have a servant who was there to wash your feet when you came into the house. We're reading about a night, the Last Supper, where there is an upper room and there is no owner. It is Jesus and the disciples. There is no one to wash their feet. Now we kind of look at it all together. They're showing up. There's no one to wash feet. Are we going to wash? Am I going to wash your feet? You going to wash my feet? No, no. We're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the most important? We're thinking any day Jesus is going to coalesce the people. He's going to form an army. There's going to be a kingdom. I want a place of position and power. If I get out and wash your feet, then it says I'm not very important. You're more important than me. So nobody wants to take that chance of washing each other's feet because what's that going to say? How will that look if I'm down doing that for you and I'm trying to make a case that I ought to sit at the right hand or the left hand? I want power. It was about ego. And people were struggling and afraid about how this was going to look. They weren't thinking about each other's needs or what somebody might be feeling is about me. And so when it comes to the end of dinner, Jesus takes off his robe, he gets a towel and a basin of water, and he goes by and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And when he finally comes to the end, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and so I am. But if I am your Lord and your teacher, and I have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. I believe Jesus was giving an example to the disciples that night they would never forget. What does it mean to say that I don't have to worry that I'm not as good as somebody else or I got to feel better than somebody else? That I can get out and wash your feet? I see your need and I want to care? I believe that's how Jesus raises us from the dead. That's what I want us to think about this morning, and I think there's two important things to see. First of all, we need to remember we are one family. We are the children of God. We are one. Sometimes we forget that Jesus came not just to save the disciples, that's what they thought, or not just save the people waving the palm branches who agreed with him. He didn't come just to save them. He came to save the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the very people who were plotting his death at that moment. He came to save the Romans, the very people who had ultimately put him on the cross. He came for all people because we're all the children of God. That would take a while for the disciples to learn that. We will see it start to unfold like with Peter when he's at Joppa up on the house and the food comes down, it's unclean, and the voice is saying, it's not unclean, you may kill and eat, go 
to the house and there you'll find Cornelius the Gentile. You can eat unclean food with the Gentile. He too is God's child. No, it'd take a while before they'd start understanding this until finally Paul would write, There is no Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. We are one in Christ. That we are one? Sometimes we forget that. Especially right now in our culture, we are living in a time where we divide ourselves along many different lines. We divide ourselves into our own little tribes. And then we are so angry and suspicious at one another. It does not lead to happiness and joy. We become numb to the feelings of others. We become numb to the suffering of others. It's the very thing that will lead to mass shootings like in New Zealand where the statement was, this killing is nothing but about hatred towards somebody who is different. Forgetting we're all God's children. It's the very kind of thing that makes us get very anxious and afraid. Oh my goodness, are you better than me? Am I better than you? What are people going to think? I better do everything I can if I have to lie and cheat to get my kids into the best schools. Because what are people going to think if they don't go to that school or they don't graduate from here? These are the very things that are tearing us apart because we're not thinking about we're one and how we're going to serve each other. I recently was watching a, a TED talk by Jacqueline Novogratz, fascinating lady. She's in her 50s now. She's very vivacious and she is just loving and kind and she just draws people to her. She's actually married to Chris Anderson who runs TED Talks. And she was giving one of these TED Talks and talking all about the Acumen Fund. She started the Acumen Fund. She's the founder and the CEO. And it's a fund where she makes investments in microloans, mainly in East Africa and in India. But she's been able to continue to expand now throughout these years to where no longer are they just $5 loans and $10 loans, but even bigger loans. And the Acumen Fund does amazing things. In this TED Talk, she was telling about one of the things they did years ago. They found a farmer who was trying to come up with a, a device to help irrigate his crops and doing something inexpensively. But he needed money to develop it. Well, when you have no capital... You have no collateral. You have no credit. You know, who wants to lend you money? That's what Jacqueline was about. And so they made the loan to this man. It wasn't a whole lot of money. He was able to develop this product. It actually worked. But then they had to lend money to the farmers to buy it. They didn't have the money to go buy it. So they lend them the money who buy it. And guess what happened? Their crops doubled. And now suddenly they had twice as much money. And they were paying back the loan. It's just somebody finally had to believe in them and try and risk and make that kind of a loan. So it's loans really about changing the world. And she was talking about the things they were doing and it's amazing. And I knew that it came this close to never happening. If you read her book, The Blue Sweater, 
She tells about why she's doing this. Been doing it now for over 30 years. Little girl growing up, she grew up in a, a lovely family. They were good Christians, good Catholics. She went to Catholic school. Her parents had means. No, she had a good beginning in life. And she was going to the school and she had Sister Mary as her first grade teacher. She loved Sister Mary. And she would go early in the day because Sister Mary let her, if she came early, help clean up the sacristy to, to, to be there in the church and help clean up. No, she loved being around her. And one day she said to Sister Mary, when I grow up, I'm going to be a nun just like you. And she said, I'll never forget, Sister Mary laughed. And she said, Jackie, I don't know what you'll do when you grow up. But just remember, to whom much is given, much will be required. You've been given much. You're smart, you're talented, you're cute, you come from a good family, you have possibilities. God's going to expect you to bless life. She was in the first grade. She never forgot it. Never forgot it. When she started growing up, she decided not to be a nun. And so she went to school, went to college. She got a degree in international finance and banking. She was incredibly driven and smart. Went to work for Chase Bank. She went to Wall Street. Then she started traveling to Hong Kong and Rio, putting together deals. She had the big title and she was making the big bucks. But everywhere she went, she saw poverty. She struggled. Ask him, why can't we make a loan here? What about a loan there? There's no collateral. That would never pass inspection. The return's not going to be great. She kept struggling and she kept praying and she felt like God was calling her to do something more. So she made the fundamental decision. She gave up her job. She gave up the big title and the big bucks. And she found a nonprofit to go to work for that was trying to learn how to make microloans. She said to him, I think I could do some great work for us here in Rio. And they said, that's wonderful. But where we need you is in Africa. And so she went to Africa. Kilgali, Rwanda. The capital of Rwanda. She went to Rwanda and there she was in her late 20s. And she came with all this enthusiasm and excitement of how she's going to come and help to change the world, only to find that the people of Kilgali weren't all that excited about a cute young white woman coming in and telling them what they needed to do. And she didn't feel accepted. She didn't find she was making friends. She was having a hard time breaking into the culture, the society, and it was going so poorly she really began to wonder. Had she heard God correctly? Maybe this isn't what she ought to be doing. She really thought about quitting, coming back home, trying to get something of the old job. She was struggling. Is this really what God wants me to do? Nothing is happening. She got up one morning to go for a run, just to think and to pray. She put on her headsets and she was out running. And while she was running, she saw a boy coming the other way and he had on a blue sweater. And when she saw him at a distance, it made her think about her childhood. Because when she was a child, her uncle had given her a blue sweater. It had mountains on it and snow-capped peaks and it had zebras. And she never thought about it. It actually kind of looked like Africa. She had loved that sweater. She had worn it all the way to high school till she outgrew it. And, 
It was still in great shape. She had taken care of it and she'd given it to goodwill. But she started thinking about her uncle. She started thinking about Sister Mary, to whom much has been given, much will be required. What does it mean to serve? She's wrestling with all these things. And as she keeps running and getting closer, she looks at the sweater and she thinks, it almost looks like it has mountain peaks on it. And as she gets closer, she realizes it's got zebras on it. And as she gets ever closer, she's thinking, well, that can't be. It looks, it looks like my sweater. She had given it to Goodwill in New York 11 years ago. She's in Kilgali, Rwanda. And as she gets closer, she's looking at this sweater, and she goes over to the boy and she says, could I look at the back of your sweater at your tag? Yes. And she opens the sweater and looks at the back, and there in her handwriting it says Jacqueline Novogratz. It was her blue sweater. And she said, in that moment, I knew God was speaking to me. This is where I want you. This is where I want you. Do you understand, Jackie, how we are all connected? We're one family. It's where I want you. She decided to stay. And right after that, the doors begin to open, meeting with a group of women, helping them start a business, making saw loans. She learned so much. It started growing. And then she started her own fund, the Acumen Fund. And now it has been going on for all these decades. They now have invested through the Acumen Fund over $103 million to build more than 96 social enterprises, created 60,000 jobs, brought basic services such as education, health care, clean water, energy, sanitation to more than 200 million people. In her talk, she said, at Acumen Fund, we believe that more important than money is dignity. People want to be seen, to be recognized, People want to know that they matter. Now we're one family. That not that someone is better than someone else, that someone is loved more by God. We're all his children. She almost quit. Sometimes we forget we're one family. All God's children. But secondly, on the night of that Last Supper, Jesus washed his disciples' feet to be able to say, are you looking at each other's need? Are you just looking at what other people may need? Something so simple as washing feet. Do we take the time to look and see another person's suffering? Or have we grown numb? Do you look and see another person suffering to where you care and then you seek to wash their feet? It's how we are raised from the dead. Something happens in your soul. 
It's when you start to find a sense of meaning, purpose, a sense of joy. I've given you an example, he said. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash the feet of one another. This isn't about your ego and seeing who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand, who's going to have power, who's more important. We all matter. Now, do you see the suffering of someone else? You know, I learned this lesson when I was just a young preacher. It was one of those lessons. There's so many lessons to be learned when you first start going into ministry. And I, I'll never forget, I started serving a little country church when I was 19 years old, 46 years ago. 19 years old, I was a student pastor. I went out to Richards, Texas. And the town was of 200 people. So you can imagine how big the church was if the whole town was only 200 and we had several churches there. It was a small little church, and, but I learned so much. God has a way of teaching you, even when you're not expecting it. I hadn't been there long until a member of the church died. It was a lady. I'd never met her. She had been in a nursing home back in Houston. She had been gone for years. But she, now that she had died, she was from Richards. They wanted to bring her back and have her buried in the family plot there. And they wanted the local Methodist minister to, to do the service. And so they called on me. Now, 19 years old, I hadn't been to seminary yet. I hadn't been taught how to do a funeral. I didn't know what I was doing. So I did the only thing I knew to do. I called my mentor, Muzan Biggs, who was the pastor ultimately at Boston Avenue Methodist Church. And I called Muzan and I said, what do I do? And he began saying, well, here's the kind of scriptures that I would read. Here's the way I'd put together a sermon. You know, here's where you do when you stand by the casket at the end of the service. You go to the cemetery and here's... I mean, he walked me through it all and I made my notes and I got ready to go do this service. I worked hard at pulling to pull it all together. It was in Navasota, a 20-minute drive from Richards, Texas. Navasota. I'll never forget that drive. I was scared to death. I mean, I was scared to death. I was going to go do this funeral. I, I don't know that I had been to a funeral. Now at 19, I was going to be conducting them. And so I went on over there and I got to the funeral home and I came in. The funeral director, the funeral home director met me. And he was a very kind man. He said, come on with me. I'll take you back here. He took me back to this little room and said, you can stay here and just be quiet. Collect your thoughts. When it's time to go, I'll come and get you and, and lead you out to where we're going to do the service. He started to go to the door and then he stopped and turned around and he said, don't be nervous. He said, I've broken in lots of young preachers before. <laughs> and whenever I break in a new young preacher, I always take two tranquilizers. <laughs> one for you and one for me and that way I know we're calm. He was calm. I was still scared to death. He chuckled as he walked out of the room and left me in this little room. He no more had walked out that door than suddenly a woman burst in through another door and she was weeping. She was crying so hard. She came and sat down and she's just sobbing. I'm 19. I'm not trained for this. No one's told me what to do for this. I looked around and I decided the room was too small to ignore her. I was going to have to do something. And I just kind of let instincts take over. I, I walked over to her and I put my hand on her shoulder and I just stood there quietly while she cried. 
Finally, she, the sobbing slowed down. She looked up at me and she said, I didn't want to cry. I know it's wrong to cry, but I loved her like a mother. And I just started talking from the heart and I said, I don't think it's wrong to cry. I mean, if you love somebody and then you're separated from them, well, we're going to hurt. We're going to grieve. I think we will cry. God understands that. I, I think God even hurts with us in this moment. I, I don't think it's wrong to cry. And I'm standing there talking and she's now looking up at me and finally she says, you must be the preacher. <laughs> yes, ma'am, I think so. <laughs> you know, I, I look back now at this age and think, what was it like for her to look up at this 19-year-old kid? She got up and she walked towards the door and she said, thank you. And she walked out. She walked out that door. Funeral director came in the other door. And he said, it's time to go. You ready? I mean, my head is spinning now. But I have to be honest. I wasn't suddenly afraid of this fact that I was about to do a funeral for the first time. No, I was thinking about this lady. When I went out and I took my seat on their podium, I started looking around trying to find her. And I finally found her towards the back sitting with the family. She wasn't crying. But I found her and I thought, you know, when I stand up and I read the scriptures that I've been told I need to read, I'm going to read them to her. And when I say the prayer that I want to say, I want to pray it to her. And when I give this sermon that I hope brings some comfort and hope, I'm hoping to speak it to her. She listened intently. She was no longer crying. We got through at the service and we went out to the cemetery I'd been trained now what to do. Muzan told me. I mean, I was there at the back of the hearse when we arrived. They open it up, and, and then the funeral director pulls out the casket. The pallbearers are there. I'm supposed to lead it and lead in front to go to the graveside. They place the casket there over the grave. I stand at the head, read the scriptures, say words, and then offer a prayer. Then you go by and shake hands with each one of the family members who are sitting there. I knew what I was supposed to do. And so I did. I I led the casket in. I then offered the prayer, uh, scripture. I said my words. I offered a prayer. And then I went by shaking hands. And she was the last one sitting there on the fam- with the family. And when I got to her, I just paused. And there I knelt down on one knee. And I said, I just want you to know, I'll be praying for you. And now she looked at me and she broke into this smile. And she said, I've heard this is your first funeral. I've already been praying for you. (laughs) When I got in the car and started driving home, I thought, okay, God, I get it. I was so nervous and anxious and afraid. I was suffering until I stopped thinking about myself and started looking at this woman who was grieving. And when I thought about her, And her suffering, it did so much to calm me. And she was so wrapped up in her grief and she was struggling with all of her pain until she started learning about me. And as she became concerned about me, it did so much to bless her. I've never forgotten that lesson driving home from Navasota, Texas. When you come together... When you realize you're one family, 
when you become concerned and aware of other people's suffering. Well, that actually, it actually leads to peace and strength and joy. Jesus said, you call me Lord and teacher, and so I am. And if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you need to do the same. That's how he raises you from the dead. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.